right, all right. So let's do this thing, shall we? All right, so. Make sure you have a study sheet. If you don't have a study sheet, raise your hand real quick. We good? Okay. All right. Okay. All right. So tonight, so tonight, I want to try to get through as much as we can quickly because I do want you guys to get into some of the um, more practical side of things. But we're learning how to study the Bible, and we're really working through the different factors of Bible study in order for you to really dive in on your own. And so these are things that you can come into class. And you can learn some of the basics of these factors, of these rules of Bible study. But until you actually go and use them, they mean nothing. They mean absolutely nothing until you go and you actually use them. So I wanted to try to reserve some time uh, towards the end where you guys could actually dive in and start doing this together. And then we can have a discussion. So we're going to work through the rule and we're going to make sure that we can get as far as we can um, so that way you guys can understand it. And then I want you to, to get into it. And remember from last week. The way you treat God is the way you treat his word, his words. And the way you treat the word of God, the Bible, is the way you treat God. You never forget that. Never forget that. And God and his words can never be separated. God is not a liar. And we're going to get in a little bit farther into Bible translations a little bit farther down the road because you're going to come to a point where, because I had to come to the same spot, when you compare two different Bible versions together, they don't say the same things. They don't. Like when you compare them together, there are some cases and a lot of cases that when you compare Bible versions together, that you have one that says it this way and this one says it the exact opposite. So you have to be careful. God is not a liar. I want to make that abundantly clear. God is not a liar. If God is a liar, then we should just leave and never come back. As far as church is concerned, we should burn all of our Bibles because it's a sham. It's a complete sham. Um, I've given my life in service to the Lord God Almighty and to his word, and I am called a minister of the gospel. On the day of my ordination, uh, it says on my ordination certificate signed by the pastors and representatives of this church that I am an ordained minister of the gospel. And the gospel comes from the Bible, and the Bible is the authority. And so this is an issue that's going to keep coming up, and this is why it's important for you guys to learn how to study your Bible. They make sure that you know how to handle your Bible properly. Okay, so we're going to talk about context. This is rule number one. This is one of the most important rules of Bible study, the context factor. And that is this, that the context of a passage must always be considered to determine its proper meaning. You have to take passages and verses in context. Every false teaching that's out there where they use the Bible to back up what they want to teach, their doctrine... What they do is they take passages, verses, or even just small portions of the scripture, and they pull it out of context and they make it say whatever they want. Anybody can do that. You can do that with any part of the Bible that you want, to take something out of it and make it say something that it doesn't mean at all. Atheists that use the Bible in their defense for their beliefs will do this all the time. They will say things like, well, what about the God of the Old Testament? It just seems like he loves murdering women and children and babies and all that stuff. And it's like, okay, hold on a second. Did that happen? Yes, those things did happen. Did God murder them? No. Did he instruct the Israelites to go and to murder those peoples? Yes, he did. Do you know why? Well, no, but it should never. Hold on. Do you know why? Because let me ask you something. If someone were to bust down your door and to threaten the life of your family, would you shoot them dead? I would. 
I would at least try to injure them, but I'm, I'm in a, at a spot where if they are coming in to kill my family and to destroy my family, they're as good as dead. I will do whatever I can to defend my family. That's my family. Has anyone ever considered that from the context of the nation of Israel and what God was trying to do to protect the nation of Israel? God who knows the end from the beginning, he knows what he's doing. There are reasons behind everything that he does. So someone that's just willing to write off Christianity and to write off God because of something like that in the Old Testament tells me that they are taking it out of context and they're not willing to consider what God actually said and why he said it the way he did. Because everything in the Bible is in there for reason and on purpose. And if you're willing to consider what it has to say in context, you will sit back and go, oh, oh, I never thought about that before. Yeah. Exactly, And most people are not willing to give God the benefit of the doubt on anything because they want to believe whatever they want to believe and they would just want to write God out of existence. So that's just a small example. And so anyway, so when it comes to the context of this passage, it always has to be considered to determine the, its proper meaning. Uh, these are two verses that are great verses to back up this context factor, this rule of Bible study, 2 Peter 1.20. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scriptures of any private interpretation... So none of it is of any private interpretation. You can't take a single verse, privately interpret that verse without looking at the context of the verses before it, the verses after it, the whole chapter that it's in, where it sits in the book that it's in. What does this book, what is this book about? Where does this book fit within the whole Bible? All these things have to be considered. And we'll look at a couple examples here in a little bit. And then 2 Peter 3, 15 and 16, love this verse. An account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some, hard, some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest or twist or manipulate, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. See, even Peter thought that there were things that Paul wrote that were very hard to understand. But people that are unlearned and unstable, they take those passages and they twist them to mean something that they were never intended to mean. And he, and he says here, they do that unto their own destruction. And that is absolutely true. So let's take a look at the definition of context. Context is very simple. Con and text. Con means? What? What? Against. It can mean that. It also means with. With? Words. With words. So this is a funny question to ask, but when you take a verse, what are the with words? What's the with words around that bad boy? It might be, might be grammatically incorrect, but that's okay. What's the context? So the context are the parts of a discourse which precede or follow the sentence quoted, the passages of scripture which are the near, that are near the text, either before or after it. And so this gets into another part of it. So you have near. So this definition talks about near context, and that means... The preceding and following verses, passages, and chapters. So that would be your near context. If, you have, if you're running across a verse in your Bible that you don't really understand, check out the near context first. Read what's going on before. Read what's going after. I've had disciples that are going through parts of their Bible, and they're reading something, and you're like, wait, what is he talking about here? Okay, stop. Go back. Reread the verses before read the verses after and if you're still not understanding what's going on then go back to the beginning of the book and start to read your way through slowly some of this stuff can be understood if we just do that alone so near context then you have remote context remote context is the theme of the book the verses in 
the theme of the Bible and how the book theme fits into the overall theme of the Bible. And go ahead and write next to that Acts 3.21. Acts 3.21. Who knows the theme of the Bible? What is the theme of the Bible? The battle for the throne. That's right. Who's going to sit on that throne? The battle for the throne. It is not about Jesus. He plays a part in that theme. It's not about the gospel. He, that plays a part in the theme as well. It is the battle for the throne. If you go back to the very beginning, and if you were to put the Bible in chronolog- chronological order, you'd begin with God creating the heaven and the earth, and then you'd have all the angels, and you have Lucifer. And Lucifer, where sin originated in his heart and in his mind, he wanted to usurp God's authority, and he wanted control of that throne. And that's how everything began. And then what do you find as you work your way through the scriptures? He's wanting that throne. He wants that throne. He wants that throne. He wants after it. He's after it, after it. Hit the book of Revelation. You have the Antichrist and the devil working for that throne, wants to be in charge and in control. And God comes down and wipes them all out, and God takes that throne. So the theme of the Bible is the battle for the throne. Ultimate control and authority over creation, both visible and invisible. So that is the theme of the Bible. So you have near context, everything around that verse Remote context, you have the theme of the book, the verses in, theme of the Bible, and how that book theme fits into the overall theme of the Bible. And then you have number three, other contextual details. Information from history and culture, comparing scripture with scripture, dispensations, the three applications, etc. So some of these other contextual details you will get from the other rules of Bible study. And so we'll go through that and show you what those are from week to week. All right, so... Every word, passage, every word, verse, passage, chapter, and book in the Bible must be understood in light of the other words, verses, passages, chapters, and books surrounding it. Failing to interpret the scriptures without properly understanding the context can lead to a multitude of doctrinal errors. Um, People do this all the time. They will take words that are spoken by people out of context. People will take words written from other people to another person out of context. And when they do that, they make it say things that person never intended. They make those words mean something that they were never intended. You know what we call that? Democrats. No, Andy. No, Andy. No. All right. (laughs) Thank you for always derailing most of the things that we do. Okay. (laughs) Am I wrong? (laughs) Republicans have their fair share, but yes, yes. Politics in general is just, yeah. Yeah. All right. So anyway, moving on. What we call that is miscommunication. (laughs) Miscommunication. Miscommunication. That's all it is. God is a perfect communicator. If we misunderstand God, it is our fault. It's because we're not willing to take God at his word within the context of all the other words in which he has spoken. Because God does not change. And we're going to get to that as another rule of Bible study because God can't change. If God can change, then he's not perfect because something that needs to change isn't perfect, right? So he can't change. And so it's important for us to understand. Okay, so let's take a look at a couple examples. We've got some some context examples and we're going to look at just some of the near context examples. So I got some verses I'm going to pop up here. Matthew 18, 20. All right, somebody read this one for me. Matthew 18, 20. Here. For where two or three are gathered together in many names, there am I in the midst of 
All right, in my name, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. How many of you have heard people quote this verse? Okay, how do you hear them quote this verse in that context of their conversation? It's like the charismatic church, and they're talking about like the Spirit coming to like the congregation. Okay, yep, because they're in a service, and they say, because you know, where two or three are gathered together in Jesus' name, there I am in the midst. Okay, how else have you heard it? Anybody else? Yes. Okay. So when people are separated because of distance or COVID and you have some other people say, okay, we're gathering together. There's two or three of us and we're gathered together and we're praying together. Jesus is here with us. Have you heard that before? I've heard that before. I've even said that before, before I knew better. The context of this passage says something completely different. Go to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. Now, let me ask you while you're turning there. Where two or three are gathered, is Jesus there? Absolutely. Because the Holy Spirit inside of a believer is called the Spirit of Christ. But let me ask you, if it's just you alone with no one around, is Jesus there? Yes, absolutely. So that's not what this verse is talking about. That's not what this verse is talking about at all. So Matthew 18. So we got verse 20. All right, so there it is. And if you have a Bible like mine, you have, a, you have verse 20 and then it begins a new paragraph of verse 21. All right, so I look at that, I'm like, okay, hold on. Okay, we got that. Okay, so let me back it up. So if I go back up in my Bible, I have a paragraph marker at verse 15. All right, let's start there. Moreover, if thy brother shall trespass against thee, go and tell him his fault between thee and him alone. If he shall hear thee, thou hast gained thy brother. But if he, will hear, if he will not hear thee, then take with thee one or two more than in the mouth of two or three. Okay, there's two or three witnesses. Every word may be established. And if he neglect to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man, as a publican. Verily I say unto you, whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say unto you that if two of you shall agree on earth as touching anything that they shall ask, it shall be done for them of my Father which is in heaven. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. What's going on in that context? Yes. Yep, absolutely. There's a phrase that's thrown around in churches called church discipline. Church discipline. So when someone is a member of a church and they start making some horrible decisions, some sinful decisions that is blasphemous towards Jesus, his reputation, we as a church have a responsibility to do something about it. We just can't let things go like that. God is holy and he has to deal with sin. So the proper method is, is that one person goes to them and says, hey, I'm really concerned. You're behaving this way or that way. This is going on in your life. First of all, is this true? And if it is, man, you need to repent. This isn't right. You're not living right. This is, the Bible says this in confronting that person lovingly and gently, as it says in Galatians chapter six, okay? So they go and they do that. And if that person doesn't hear them, then you take with you one or more so that we have two or three people that go to that person and say, listen, we've talked to you before, but you're not listening. This is not, this is not good. This is getting out of hand. You confront them biblically, lovingly, and then if they don't respond then, then you go to the leaders of the church, and leaders of the church will then have to deal with it because you can't just have sin exist inside of God's body. It just doesn't work. If you go back to Joshua chapter 7, you have the situation with Achan where he did something against God, and it actually affected the whole camp of the Israelites. They couldn't win any of their battles. 
And so you have to deal with sin. You can't expect God to bless you in your life and in your church if you're letting sin just fester undealt with in your church. It just doesn't work. It doesn't work in your personal life and it doesn't work corporately. And so when you're in those circumstances, how many of you like really thrive and enjoy confronting other people? <laughs> Deep down, Andy, no, you don't. You do not. You do not, you liar. <laughs> yeah, the uniform's different, yeah. No one likes that. Do we know, why, why don't we like that? We hate confrontation because? Yeah, and it's awkward. Like, you don't want people to not like you. You don't want to, you don't want to talk about it. And that's why a lot of people just push things under the rug. They don't even want to deal with stuff. So when Jesus says, for where two or three, as he just said in the previous verses, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. You know what that does in my heart? Because I've had to do this. I've had to go, and on one occasion, I've had to go with two other guys to someone's house to confront them on an issue to find out what's going on. And it was a big, serious issue. I was nervous as all get out. I did not want to do it. The other guys felt exactly the same way. And so you know what Jesus promised? Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. I'm with you guys. I know it's hard. I know you guys don't like doing this, but I need you to do it. I need you to do it. This is my body. This, this is my person in, in, in your body that needs to be taken care of. So do it. Have boldness, have confidence, and do it. See? See how that changes that verse completely? Completely. And people take it out of context. All right. Um, I'll just go through this one real quick, very briefly, because we could spend like hours on this one. John 6. The Roman Catholic Church takes this verse these verses completely out of context and they've built a whole doctrine called transubstantiation around these verses. Whoso eateth my flesh, Jesus is speaking here, and drinketh my blood, he hath eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is meat indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He that eateth my flesh and drinketh my blood dwelleth in me and I in him. Based on this verse, Catholic churches mainly, there are other ones, but mainly the Catholic church believes in a doctrine called transubstantiation. That during Mass, when the priest takes the wafer and the cup of wine, that he prays over it, and it becomes the literal body and the blood of Jesus. Now, there are many Catholics that don't even know that, but there are many that may know about it because they heard about it in their catechism classes, but they really don't believe it. But the Catholic Church literally believes that when you go up and you take that wafer from the priest and you drink of that communal cup, you are literally eating and drinking Jesus' body. And if you don't do that, you are not in good favor with God and you run the risk of going to purgatory or hell. And they take these verses, which is pretty clear. I mean, if you were to just take these verses, doesn't it seem like you have to consume Jesus in order to be saved? Okay, that's why they take these verses. But if you go in the context of these verses, you find out that there were people that were following Jesus just because they wanted to be fed. He was doing miracle after miracle when it came to taking the, the five loaves and the two fish and, and multiplying it and feeding the 5,000. And they were seeking him because they wanted to see miracles and they wanted to be fed. And so what Jesus was communicating to them was, listen, guys, listen, it's not, it's not the food. If you want to be saved to have eternal life, you have to consume me. And later on in the same passage, he actually says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. So even in that same passage, just a few verses later, he says, the words I'm speaking, they're spiritual. They're not literal. They're spiritual. So it's really cool. 
And I love how God puts that right there in the context. But that's another great example. All right, go to Revelation 3.20. We'll take a look at this one. I'll go through a few more details, and then we'll get you guys practicing this a little bit. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3 and verse 20. All right, someone read that one. 3.20. Carson, go ahead. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come in to him and, with, and will stop with him and be with me. All right, so when have you heard this verse before? Anybody? <laughs> You're not... I, I'm not sure if you're talking about this specific, but I remember my first year of camp, the, your illustration was like him coming into the house. Okay, so this could be a verse talking and bringing someone to the point of salvation. And there are some preachers that will use this verse at the end of messages to bring someone to the point of making a decision for salvation. They say, see, Jesus says, behold, I stand at the door. I stand at the door of your heart and I knock. And if you don't answer that door, he will come in and he will sup with you and you with him. You'll have fellowship. Seems like a great verse to use for an invitation. And it certainly can be if you want to. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. Like at all. (laughs) At all. Because if you look at the context, you go back. This begins at verse 14 because this is the letter to the church of the Laodiceans. And unto the angel of the church of the Laodiceans. So who is in the church? What? No, 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 not angels. I mean, like, doctrinally speaking, when we talk about the church, the universal church, the local church, who's in the church? People who are saved, Christians, born-again believers. So the moment that you are born again, I'm sorry, I, I didn't know I realized I asked a tough question. Um, I'm kidding. <laughs> All right. We just weren't on the same page. All right, so... People that are born again, when they receive Christ as their Savior, they are then put into what's called the body of Christ or the church. So they are in the church. They're in the universal church as a whole, all born-again believers. And then here, you can't be a member in our church unless you are a born-again believer. You have to be born again. You have to have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior. You can't be in our local church here without that being the case. So it's under the angel of the church of the Laodiceans right These things say at the Amen, the faithful and true witness. He's writing this to the church of the Laodiceans. So he's writing to people who are saved. So Jesus is speaking to people that are saved, and he goes through and he starts to tell them the stuff that is not right in their life whatsoever. I mean, they even says, verse 17, Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods and have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. He's saying, you guys have a problem. You are my people And you have a huge problem. You think you're okay when you're not. You're not hot. You're not cold. You're lukewarm right down the middle, not taking a stand on anything, not dealing with stuff in your life. I need you to be my ambassadors in this world. What are you doing? Get with it. And so then you keep going. Verse 19, he says, As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me on my throne, even as I also uh, I also overcame and am set down with my father in his throne. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. So he's speaking to save people and he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So what this means is, is that there's a group of believers that are busy doing their version of church 
calling on God, praying in the name of Jesus, doing works in the name of God and Jesus, and Jesus is on the outside of the door, not being invited to church. He's not even invited in. I can't tell you, this is one of the things that, that really ticks me off about Christians in our world today. There are so many Christians that every single day of their life here on this earth, they are blaspheming God by their life and their behavior, the things they say, the things they do. They are not representing Jesus properly. They're not. They're hypocrites. And I know that we can be too, but it drives me insane. It drives me insane because they are a mockery. And this world laughs at Christians because of Christians like that. They are trying to play church. They say they love God. They say they walk with God, but Jesus isn't even allowed in the building. They're doing all this stuff in the name of God, but he has nothing to do with it. And he's on the outside of the door knocking, trying to get someone's attention. So that way they can be like, hey, someone's knocking at the door. Who is it? Uh, it's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus, what do you mean? Jesus is here. Well, no, that's Jesus. He's knocking and he wants in. Oh, no, no, no. We... Jesus is here. I don't know who that is, but forget it. We've, we've got Jesus. We're just fine. Ah, that's the problem. This is why he's like, I want to vomit you guys out of my mouth. Because you say you're fine. You say you have Jesus, but you don't have him. He's out there. Now, they're saved and everything's okay. I mean, they're gonna, when they die, they're going to go to heaven. But the work that they're doing here means nothing. There's so many Christians that are more interested and they feel all super spiritual because the songs that they sing on a Sunday morning, like they're moved in their heart to serve God because of the lights and the sounds and the, and the fog machines rather than the hearing of the word of God. It's terrible. It's wrong. It's absolutely wrong. There are people that will take mission trips. And I'm not saying this is wrong, but I don't like it. <laughs> I don't. Well, they will take mission trips and they will go to Africa and they will dig a village a well or they will paint buildings and they will construct all this stuff and not once open their mouth and give people the gospel. I have no problem digging wells and building buildings and painting stuff. But how dare we go somewhere and not tell someone about Jesus Christ? This happens all the time. And these Christians that go and do all this humanitarian stuff, all it does is make them feel better about themselves. And they've never given these people anything. What good does it do to give someone a roof over their head and then usher them straight to hell? So we've got to be careful because the things that we do in the name of God may not be anything that God wants us to be doing. And we've left him out while we're headlong down the trail that we're blazing for ourselves to build our own reputation or to make us feel about ourselves in this world. So we've got to be careful. That's Revelation 3.20. So that's an important one that a lot of people take out of context. Okay, let's talk about it a little bit with remote context. Now, these are notes you're going to have to go over a little bit more on your own. So I'm going to breeze through them pretty quickly. But there's a lot of false doctrine that comes out of these particular contexts because people are not willing to take them in context properly. So the book of Acts, a lot of people get some false doctrine out of the book of Acts. You cannot get any good church doctrine out of Acts. The only thing that you can get good out of Acts, get good. The only thing good that you can get out of the book of Acts is that you can see the pattern that Jesus and God used in the church in order to reach the world. That's the, really the only thing you can model. 
You can model how they multiplied and the events that occurred in history. You can follow that same pattern. Our church is based upon that exact same pattern that you find in the book of Acts. In fact, I'm teaching a class in JBI this year where we study Acts 1 through chapter, uh, I think it's 18 or 22. And we literally walk through the whole thing to see how the church began and how it multiplied and how it spread and how it became known as local churches as we have them today. But there's a lot of people that get some crazy doctrines, like speaking in tongues, believing that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, modern day prophets, um, they use a lot of things like that uh, in order to, and they pull those verses out of Acts when really they're taking them completely out of context. First Corinthians, this is a book that Paul wrote. It was a rebuke to that church. And they were carnal and they were fleshly in almost every area. So from chapter one, all the way through the end, Paul is correcting them on all these things. And yet you hit chapter 13 and 14 and people think that they can pull out doctrines on how you're supposed to speak in tongues. And they completely take that completely out of context. So a lot of charismatics will use that book very incorrectly on those doctrines. Hebrews is another one where they get a lot of false doctrine. This was written um, to the Jews by Paul during his three and a half years out in the wilderness as he comes to the full understanding of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament types and pictures <clears throat> and establishing a better covenant that supersedes the Old Testament covenant. This book, this is amazing, will be the key for the uh, Jews during the tribulation for them to come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. It's absolutely amazing to see how that's going to work out. But there's a lot of people who take verses out of Hebrews and they think that we need to start doing some uh, Jewish feasts and rituals and traditions. They'll take other verses and say, see, you can lose your salvation when it doesn't teach that at all. Um, Genesis through Joshua, you can look through that a little bit later. But Genesis through Joshua is a beautiful picture of God restoring the kingdom of God. Um, and then you have Ezra through Proverbs and just the pattern that it goes one right after the other. Uh, God really establishes how he's going to restore the kingdom of heaven one day. And it's really, really neat. Um, and it really, I mean, you could preach the gospel from Genesis to Joshua. It's beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And then the second coming and all that God wants to do with the nation of Israel is Ezra through Proverbs. It's absolutely gorgeous. I love it. We don't have time to go through that tonight, but that is something you can take a look at a little bit later. And then other things that people have a hard time with. Some people struggle with the book of Jonah. Um, and they struggle with Jonah because it deals with a Gentile nation, Assyria. And so uh, a lot of people don't, they take some things in there that are completely wrong. Um, the book of Daniel has a lot of prophecy. And so understanding details about Babylon will help you to understand what's going on in the Old Testament and even some of the other things that God puts in there. And the book of Revelation, man, people butcher this like crazy. Revelation is sometimes hard to understand, but once you divide it properly and take it in context, it's very simple. So understanding John's perspective on how he would have recorded and perceived future history Observing the historical details of chapters 2 and 3 and how they line up with the historical events of church history. And realizing that God repeats the events of the tribulation three times in the course of chapters 5 through 19 will help anyone gain a better handle on the whole book. So people butcher Revelation, but man, if they would just take some time and divide it up, they'd be able to take everything in context. So that's a lot of information. So we have about maybe 10 minutes that I want you guys to work through some examples. So go ahead and get in your guys' groups real quickly. So you can just, if you need a separator, if you're good with where you're at, that's fine. But I want you guys to get in your groups. All right, so give me your groups up here. What do you got? Who's your group? You three right here? You two? You four then? Or do you jump in with these guys? We need two, Make a decision. Two threes. Two threes? Yeah. Okay, all right. You're leaving him out. One, two, three, four. Wait. 
Just a silence. <laughs> four. All right, so you guys, four right here. Okay? All right, so you three will be right here. And you three right there. Okay. So I want you guys to take a look at Mark 16, 16 through 18. All right? And you guys can do the same one. Mark 16, 16 through 18. You guys take a look at Acts 1, 38. Okay? And then you guys can jump in. Are you two together? Or do you want to jump in with how we're going to do that? How about Rick? You take those two guys. And then Jack. Come up with Carson. Sorry, I made you move last minute. All right. So Jack, Carson, Maddie, you guys take um, Acts 1, 38. Okay? So you use Acts 1, 38 as well. And then um, you guys in the back, go ahead and take Acts 19, 1 through 7. Okay? All right. Who's our group up here? All right, four right here. Okay, do the Hebrews six, four through seven. Oh, I didn't get you guys. Two thirty. Yeah, two thirty. Should be Acts two thirty. Sorry, not one thirty eight. Two thirty. Okay. Do you do the Hebrews six, four through six? Got it. All right. Here's our group here. Everybody. Okay. All right. All right. So, first three. It doesn't matter. All right. Go ahead and do the um, Mark six. That's all right, you guys have about 10 minutes. Read it. Try to understand the context, and then we'll get back together, and we'll talk about it. Let's talk about it. We're running out of time, so we need to talk about some of this stuff. Okay. All right. So, which groups have the Mark 16, 16 through 18? Mark 16. You guys, you guys, you guys up here. Okay. All right. I know. You needed more time. I know. I know. All right. So, what does that, pass- what does that passage appear to be saying, and what is it actually saying from those groups that actually did that work, or partially? Partially do the work. <laughs> yeah, Emily. So, it sounded like he was literally saying anybody that believed on him will be able to cast out devils, speak with new tongues, like speak in tongues, um, take up servants. If they drink, like have any poison, it won't hurt them. They can lay, lay their hands on the sick and um, they'll heal them. Mm-hmm. And so we made a few cross-references, but we didn't have quite enough time to really put all of that together. So yeah. we can share what we cross-referenced with you. That's fine. Go for it. So. And by the way, it also says in there that he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Yes. 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 Which okay. at first I thought it was going to be about baptism. I was like, oh, okay. And then it wasn't. And then it was more. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Like, oh. Yeah. Um, so I went to um, Matthew 28 where the regular great commission it well regular not that there's like great, but like you know when you first think of when you think of the great commission because yeah yeah i'm just, yeah, I'm just gonna go and, um this is go ye therefore and teach all nations baptizing them in the name of the father and of the son and of the holy ghost teaching them to observe all things whatsoever i have commanded you and lo i'm with you always even unto the end of the world amen 
So we took the I'm with you all way, like, and then we went to yours. Okay. Um, so you go to James 5, and the first reference was 14, but I went back to 13, and it's, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church, and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if he had committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. So I think once you, if looking at it in that context, it's not literally to be taken like, okay, in my name, like, yes, all those things can be done, but I think people take that out as like, okay, that's, you know, that's like spiritual gifts or like all these things you can pull from that. Um, but it's saying like, if you call in my name anything, like I can change anything, and you look at how he used that with the 70 in their mission to, you know, um, in Luke. But um, so what we kind of came up came up with from that was that it's saying like the prayer of faith. If you pray in the Lord's name in faith, you can receive from that if it's in His will. Okay, and that passage is very actually very difficult to understand as well. The one in James. There's just a lot of people that misunderstand that one as well. Okay. Did I misunderstand? No, I think I think you did. You did okay. fine. The, the the issue with James, which we'll get at one more a little bit later when we do cross referencing and the uh, the dispensation factor, is that James is more of a Jewish book that will be it's something that we that is for us today in the church period, but it is going to be used mainly in the tribulation period because they're not going to have access to medicines and doctors because of the mark of the beast, and so they're not going to be in a situation where they can go and get those things. And so if any are you sick? Well, let them call the elders of the church and pray on them because there's nothing else that we can do. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick. But does that mean save from salvation so that when they die, they actually go to heaven at that point in time? Or does that mean praying for them will actually save them from their sickness? could actually be both in that context. So it's, it's, so that passage is a little bit difficult. So, But I will ask you guys this. Or actually, before we go on to that, anything else you guys want to add? Crickets. <laughs> crickets are not... You can't add crickets to it. It just doesn't work. <laughs> Nothing? You guys? Nothing? Okay. All right, so let me ask you this question. Because you were at a, you had a good start. If you had more time, you probably could have put, a, put together an answer. Let me ask you this question. Um, when it goes to that list uh, and all the things they said they were going to do, did they actually do those things? Yeah, they did. So it is to be taken literally. So I want to make sure you don't take it as just symbolic. Because it is true, too, that symbolically that can be taken that way. But he did say... Those of you that follow me, the, the word will be confirmed by these particular signs and wonders. So the question is, is uh, when it comes to the book of Mark, let's look at it context, all right? What is the book of Mark about? So when you look at the book of Mark, it's about the life, ministry, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. And at the very end, he commissions his disciples to go out and to be his witnesses, right? Okay, so you got that. You also have Mark. What happens after the book of Mark? Like the events, historically, what would happen after the book of Mark? Acts. So you have the beginning of the book of Acts, where you do have them speaking in different tongues, not the tongues that we see today in churches, because tongues today in churches are just a bunch of gibberish. It's actually real languages that exist that a person could not speak previously. And that's why he says speak with other tongues or other languages. And then you have, uh, so you have those events of the book of Acts, all right? Then you have the end of the book of Acts, or end of the book of Mark actually ties in perfectly with the first part of the book of Acts. So all those kind of really go together. So you know that happens together. And then the audience in chapter 16 are the Jewish people, Jewish people that were, they were faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. And so 
when you study all this out, and there's more to it than just this, but Jesus is speaking directly to those 12 and his disciples as they were to go out and to preach the word of God and confirm that word with signs following. And that's exactly what it says at the very end. And it was to the Jewish people. And that goes perfectly in with Acts chapter 1 because Acts chapter 1 and then you have Acts chapter 2 where they receive the Spirit of God. And then Peter preaches to the Jews. You don't see a Gentile mentioned once in the book of Acts until you hit chapter 8. So it's a ministry to the Jewish people to try to get them to receive Jesus as their Messiah primarily, not their Savior, as their Messiah. And then once the Jewish people officially reject Jesus, then that's where Paul shows up on the scene. He gets saved. He becomes the apostle unto the Gentiles. And God starts to turn away from the Jewish people for a period of time, put them on the back burner, not to get rid of them altogether, and now start focusing on the Gentiles. And then you start to see signs and wonders eventually go dead. They ceased until the church is raptured out. Boom. And then you have the tribulation period, which now the focus is back onto the Jewish people, nation of Israel, and signs and wonders will start again during that time. Yeah. Uh, so how, like, when you say that the, the signs and wonders just slowly just... Stopped. Yeah, just yeah, stopped. Yeah, ceased. Like, did people that were able to do signs and wonders just not be able to do it anymore? Or Correct. Or were people, like, or did they just... <laughs> Stop like using them. Off, and then other people that, like other Jews that were like getting saved, just didn't have them. Both. Best example is Paul. <laughs> Paul had the ability to heal. There's a story in the Book of Acts where a young man was sitting on a ledge, and he was preaching, long-winded hours. He fell asleep, fell from the window. It was like two stories, hit the ground, and died. Paul went down, embraced him, and brought him back from the dead. Um, you find out later in one of Paul's epistles, I think it was in uh, Second Second Timothy, I think it was, it says, Trophimus, I left in my lead him sick. So you actually see that Paul did not have the ability to heal his friend Trophimus, and he left him in my lead him sick. And so it kind of goes back to what was the purpose of the healing sign? And that's going to lead us down a huge rabbit trail. But overarchingly, the purpose of the signs is, Ma is Mark 16, that you're going to preach the word with signs following. The signs actually confirm the word that was being preached. And this goes all the way back in the Old Testament for the first time that signs showed up. The first time the word signs show up in your Bible, it is with Moses working miracles where your hand, his hand was leprous. He put it in his, his garment and it came out with leprosy. He put it back in and it came out and it was whole. So that's healing. So he had the sign of healing. And then he threw his rod on the ground and became a snake. And then he picked it back up by the tail. And then he poured water out and it became blood. And Jesus said, show these signs unto my people that they may believe that I sent you. And this is why um, Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty-two and in 14.22 that the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. We need things to make sense. We're Greeks. We are Gentiles. We need things to make sense and be one, two, three, four, five, six, ABC. All that. Jews don't care a lick about that. They need to see a sign. I don't care what the order is. I don't care how it makes sense. I need to see a sign in order to believe that that's actually God. And that's how they operate. So it's two different contexts as far as how they were raised and how they were brought up. So a little bit of rabbit trail, but that's kind of the other part of the study. And when you get into Mark 16, because there's a lot of charismatics that will use Mark 16 
as proof of you need to be baptized in order to be saved. And after you're saved, you can start speaking in tongues. You can start healing. You can pick up deadly serpents and they'll bite you and you're not going to die. You can, do, you can do all that stuff. But yet, that's not what God was intending. He's saying, you Jewish men who are my disciples, go and preach the word. And these things are going to follow to confirm the word that you're preaching so that my people might believe that I sent you. So that's kind of where that comes from. Okay, so that was a tough one. That was a tough one. All these are tough. Let's try to go through these other ones pretty quickly. Acts 2.38. Carson? Okay. Okay. So the original verse is, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost, which I think is mostly taken as baptism is a necessary part of your salvation. Right. Um, That's what it appears to say. Yep. Yeah. Um, so what we said is most of this chapter is Peter's, well, I think maybe all of it, is Peter's uh, message about who Christ is and how he, um, or what he means to them. Um, and so they, in verse 37, it says, Now when they heard this, they were pricked in their heart and said unto Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? So they're already saved by that point, is, is what, how I took it. And then um, they're just asking, what do we do next? How can we do anything to help this cause? Um, and so Peter tells them to repent, uh, ask for forgiveness of their sins, and then to be baptized so that they're publicly known among their peers and the people around them, it's the same thing, um, that they are followers of Christ. Okay. All right, not bad. Only thing is they weren't saved yet. Okay. And you want to add something to it? So I would add a couple things as far as context. Is it was Peter's message, like um, Carson said, but it was at Pentecost, so it was only to Jews. Right. And then you see verse 36, you know, he tells them, you crucified our Messiah, and so verse 37, they're convicted. But then they ask Peter, what shall we do, not how shall we get saved? So Peter gives his, what is it, Peter's baptism of repentance. It was John's. Oh, John. Yeah before or for Israel mm-hmm. before or after the crucifixion mm-hmm. um, we didn't really have time to get into cross references but if you look back in the chapter verse 27 Peter was already speaking and said it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved yeah. um, which makes that pretty clear and then in Acts 10 43 this was Peter speaking at a different time and says to him give all the prophets witness that through his name whosoever believes in him shall receive the remission of sins and you can even go to Acts chapter 8 with the yeah. Ethiopian eunuch, but they weren't asking how to get saved. They're asking, okay, we killed the Messiah. What are we supposed to do? Right, and that's the key. So, good for both of you guys. Anything you want to add? Go ahead. Um, yeah, so just to add to that, so when they were asking what they knew, needed to do to be saved, basically in 38, the repentance is for the murdering of Jesus, and then they needed to identify publicly with. Um, like separate themselves from John's baptism and identify publicly with Jesus Christ because they had denied him publicly. And then um, in 41, then those of them who received the message gladly then were baptized the same day they added about 3,000 souls. So there were that day 3,000 souls who received Jesus as their Savior and were saved right. at that time. So the key is definitely as Messiah. So Peter gives the whole history of the nation of Israel and he gives it, and he talks about the, the one that God promised, and everything talks about the Messiah. And he's like, dudes and ladies, <laughs> he showed up. 
He came. Sorry. Sorry, Kenneth. <laughs> he showed up. And you killed him. This was the man that we've been waiting for. I mean, you got to understand the way the Jews thought about this. Their entire life centered on the Messiah and him coming. I mean, everything in the Old Testament, God promised and everything, it was all about Jesus. And he came and they rejected him and then killed him. And so now they're in a spot where we're like, oh, crud. <laughs> what do we do? This is the one we've been waiting for and we killed him? What are we supposed to do now? I mean, the, the one that we've been waiting for, for thousands of years, we just killed the guy. And so then it was like, okay, now repent that you killed him and be baptized in his name. And because you believe God, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. That's what happened. So was it for salvation? Yes, in that particular context for the Jewish people. But it was to, it was the whole public thing of, of him being the Messiah. So that's huge. That's huge. All right. Um, man, I wish we had more time. We don't have time to go through the other ones. I'll just say them quickly. So Acts 19, Acts 19, you want to do it real, real fast, Isaac. Okay, um, you already said the Acts was transitional work, so it's not something based on. Yeah. And what our pastors appear to be saying is, uh, we're talking about being saved and happening, and then it made it seem like uh, he spoke in tongues, and that was part of baptism in verse 6, it says that Paul laid his hands upon them, and all he goes to the among them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied, and, uh, Yep. Yeah, Andy used to believe that. Yeah. Or at least he faked it. I faked it. And what we it's talking about Paul's being up this, and he was talking to believers, and they were saved. And it says, He sends them, it's verse 8. He sends them, unto what then were you baptized? And they said, unto John's baptism. And John's baptism was talking about. Like a baptism of repentance. Yep. And then they said, and then the report says, then, uh, then said Paul, John barely baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, who should come after him, talking about Jesus. And then it says, um, that is on Christ Jesus, which is what they have to believe on. So they got baptized after they were saved, believing on Jesus Christ. And yet when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So you don't need Right. So it appears to mean that when they actually get saved, you need to speak in tongues. Like you can actually believe in God, but you don't really, you're not really saved until you speak in tongues. That's kind of what it appears to be teaching. So what it's actually saying is these guys were baptized according to John's baptism, John the Baptist, which was Jesus is coming. But the reality is, is that Jesus already came. And now you're getting into... Um, a scenario where are these guys saved or not? Like, is this legit or not? And so when they were baptized at that point in time, they spoke in tongues because tongues are a sign for unbelieving Jews. And that would be the cross references of 1 Corinthians one twenty two and 14.22. That tongues was not for Gentiles. It was for unbelieving Jews, for Jews to believe that God was doing something. And so the unbelieving Jew in that scenario would have been Paul because Paul was not sure if these guys were legit. So when they were baptized and they spoke with other tongues, I mean, other languages, then Paul's like, okay, done deal. I'm good. God did this and we can move on. We can move forward. So that's what's going on there. So good. All right. And then Hebrews. Yeah. All right. So the verses appear to be saying that um, you can do something to lose your salvation and you can't get it back. But Hebrews isn't written to Christians. It's actually written to Jews. 
more specifically the Jews in the end times, mm-hmm. so that when Jews read it in the end times, they can get saved. And then um, in verses 11 through 14 of chapter 5, it's talking about how like they need to be teachers and they need to be able to discern from right and wrong. And then verse, verses like 1 through 3 of 6 is saying that they need to like leave the principles of the doctrine of Christ because obviously salvation is going to be different in the end times. So, I mean, if someone falls away, then it's obviously going to be almost impossible impossible for them to get right with God because it's a lot easier to get deceived in the end times. And, um, like, God is going to give them a reason to not believe in him. So. Okay, okay, not bad, not bad. That one's a tough one. This is it's hard. Hebrews 6 is is probably one of the more difficult passages in the Bible to discern. So with that one... It's it, you can see it both ways. So when I explain it to you, maybe later on tonight, read it and you'll see what I'm talking about. So it's explained two ways. The first way is is that you know when you're talking about these things, um, that once someone is enlightened and they've tasted of the heavenly gifts and, and of the world to come, um, that if they leave that, for them to be renewed again under repentance, like there's just no way. In fact, I'm butchering it. I want to actually say it the right way because of the way that it's worded. So let me look at that real quick. So Hebrews chapter six. Okay, so it says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted of the good word of God and of the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Okay, so there's two ways to look at this. One is from the church age, because Hebrews, yes, it's written primarily to Jews, but it's also in the church age, so there's still some things we can pull from this. But yes, it is something that is going to take place primarily in the tribulation period for Jews that are lost. So first of all, he says, for it is impossible. So just that alone says, what I'm about to say is impossible. It's absolutely impossible. It's impossible for someone who is once enlightened to, if they should, verse six, fall away to renew them again under repentance. So it's impossible that they would fall away because they won't because they're eternally secure. So it actually can teach eternal security from that perspective. And the second thing is, is that if you leave the doctrines of Christ, if you leave those things, then Christ can't be crucified for you again, because that's what it says. Christ can't die again. He's already died. And so if you leave that, there's nothing left for you. And so that's the other thing that is teaching there too. So Jews during the tribulation can lose their salvation and so can Gentiles. And so this shows that and it teaches that, that if you fall away, there's nothing left for you. If you walk away from this, then you can lose your salvation and there's nothing left for you. But as far as people now during the church age, it actually teaches eternal security by the way that it's worded. So it can mean both things, but in two completely different time periods. See, this is one thing once we get to dispensations that will be, I mean, it'll amaze you guys. The word of God was written over many different dispensations. And so God will use his word in one dispensation and have it say the exact same thing. But then if you remove the Bible from that context and you go forward in history into the tribulation and you drop that Bible and they open it, they will read that same passage and it still means the exact same thing, but it's for them right where they're at at that time. And it's exactly what they need to hear. And God is able to do that because he did it. I mean, we read Genesis, right? And Genesis was written back when Moses was around. And so we benefit from Genesis, but it was primarily for them at that time. It's really cool. So we'll get into that when we get into more into dispensations. But that passage can actually teach both things, how it's worded. And it can be this way in this dispensation and that way in another dispensation and never contradict. So it's really cool. It's really cool. 
This is the kind of stuff I get fired up about. I'm like, man, the Bible is amazing. So, anyway, we'll talk more about that in future weeks. Okay, we are way stinking over. So I need to find a better way to make our time more efficient. I will work on that in weeks to come. Um, hopefully by next week I'll have a better idea on that. All right, let's go ahead and pray and then we'll get out of here. God, thank you so much for our time together. I pray that we would take these things to heart and really hide them uh, in our heart, that you would change us from the inside out. Thank you for your book. It is amazing. It is wonderful, and it is everything that we need for this life and how to be godly. So I pray that we would cherish it and that we would not neglect the manna that you give us each and every day from your word. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.